1: Well, Michael, we're back with another rescreening episode. Last time we went 100 years back, this time 50. The year is 1971. The titles are McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Death in Venice, and The Last Picture Show. What do you think um, broadly about this uh, journey we went on?
2: I think this is a very fun journey. I do have a favorite here. I have a a pretty easy ranking of the three movies, but I really enjoyed all three. Um, Lots to talk about. This is the first year we've done these retrospectives, uh, which I think is a great new uh, habit of the show. And this was your idea. So fantastic idea. I think at some point we'll do uh, the other increments, maybe 75 years back or 25 years back, but we're starting with 100 and now 50. Uh, and I'm enjoying it so far. How about you?
1: Yeah, I am thrilled. I I could see us adding 75 in next year. This year's already gotten away from us and we're quite busy. Um, So I think we'll do 25 years back this year as well, which I believe was 1996. And I think Mm. we already settled on our titles from that year, if I remember correctly. Um, But yeah, I mean, just looking back in time, you know, The Last Picture Show is a film in which you know, the Korean War is occurring or beginning to occur. Um, We're kind of in this, it's an interesting period because we're in the middle of the Vietnam War and there's all these men that went to World War II in that film. So there's still great respect for um, people in the army at that point in time, which kind of evaporates at the point when this film was made. And, you know, in general, all three of these films are really, casting a long look back um, either you know 1950s America or frontier America um, or you know all, all the way across Europe to you know the meaning of beauty. If we're looking for something collectively at this point in time I think.
2: Yeah our, our retrospective year is 1971. Zero out of our three movies today are set in nineteen seventy one. We have three period pieces, which is kind of funny. That was not intentional. I that did not cross my no, mind but, until, And I mean
1: we we picked from the cream of the crop, and it just so happened that like the best movies that were coming out this year that you and I hadn't seen or were willing to rewatch were not contemporary. And I think that speaks mm-hmm. more of the, the time.
2: Yeah. Um in two of the three, um Last Picture Show and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I feel like I just cannot really separate from the 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 new Hollywood movement, um, which I feel like 71 is sort of representative of, and, um, uh, you know, the uh, shift towards the so-called, you know, kind of gritty realism of um, filmmakers like Bogdanovich and Altman and uh, Coppola, Ashby. Who did you say?
1: Oh, I thought you were talking about our directors. I was like, Visconti. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh.
2: Um, Yeah, you know, it's almost kind of like, almost a cliche to like bring up the, the new Hollywood because I feel like that's like the most one of the most popular and widely discussed moments in mainstream film history but you almost like can't really talk about these movies without bringing that up a little bit Um
1: yeah it yeah. was weird for me to see the Warner Brothers logo say Kenny whatever it, it says you know when the the movies start up and I, I was like wow two of these um, are from that that company I don't remember the full line of it but it's just it's interesting to think about the different acquisitions that have occurred and you know as you mentioned Altman but I mean just thinking back on like how monumentous I mean it's no secret we're going to respond very positively to the last picture show like that Bogdanovich isn't a bigger deal now is kind of. Mm. It's just weird to me because, like, Sybil Shepard and Ellen Burstyn, who are in the film, are still considered, like, socially, culturally fairly big deals. But Bogdanovich, you know, one of the the great curators of American cinema, somehow is not. It's interesting.
2: Yeah, I feel like he had such a hot streak, like, right off the bat with this. And then a couple others that I haven't seen, like, I think Paper Moon and What's Up Doc came out right after the last picture show and those were uh well received and then i think there was kind of a cratering in terms of like how his movies were were received and that's maybe like overshadowed uh his his name in general um which is i think a terrible mistake for someone to make cause i think the i think the last picture show is fantastic as we'll talk about
1: yeah um well let's get into first impressions and then after that i'll kind of set the scene with um Some of the keyer events of 1971, just to make this a bit more broad of a cultural discussion of these films as well, rather than just critical analysis of within the film. Let's do it. Let's start with Scenes from a Marriage. I realize everything that you've
0: despised me for. Somebody else would love me for exactly the same thing. All I want is what I used to have. I want to come home. It's like a piece of tape that you rip off and try to reapply. It might stick, but it's never going to be like the first time.
1: All right, Michael, that trailer ended and there was an eerie silence in this room. What? do you think of the trailer that we just watched of scenes from marriage
2: man i'm really not quite sure what to think to be honest what's interesting is that i watched that and i knew this show was coming out i knew it had jessica chastain and oscar isaac i I hadn't even really seen any images from it so i just didn't have anything in my head as to what it would look like really very little about it like reminds me of Bergman like if you if it were just called something else I don't know that I would have even like said oh this is a remake of Bergman's scenes from a marriage it's so modern it's so uh, glossy in a very contemporary way um, it doesn't even like the the story beats that we're getting a peek at don't even really seem to remind me of like what the story was in scenes from a marriage like I remember. The very first episode of the Bergman one, I think, starts with them, the couple being interviewed by a magazine about their, like, relationship. I don't – it doesn't look like this is doing that. It just seems really different, Um, which I think is fine. I'm almost just surprised that, like, they just didn't make this an original kind of thing. Um, What about you? What are your thoughts?
1: I echo a lot of that, but I think – well, I know that we both love scenes from a marriage, but I think that maybe I do deify it maybe a little bit more than you. Like, I mm. really think it's one of the greatest things that's, like, ever been put on screen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't get the impression that this is really a remake of it so much as an homage. And so if, mm. if this was yeah. just titled, What is Love? question mark, And they said it's an homage that's um, inspired by... I'd be a lot more lenient toward what I just saw. But as far as like being a direct remake, like it's kind of inexcusable from what I've seen because it doesn't look original. um, And in the sense that like, it's not only a remake, but it's doing things that are rehashed and a little bit trite, like that are in the zeitgeist right now of talking about, um, you know, some of the things that were a lot more progressive at the time um, that the original scenes from Marriage came out like women's wages and, you know, who should lead the household, especially at that point in time um, for for them in Europe. Um, I, I just I'm not sold and I'm willing to watch it, but I think I'm going to be so incredibly jaded by the fact that it's a remake of one of my favorite things And it doesn't really take being a remake seriously in any way that I respect. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I'm not concerned because I think a lot of people will like it, but I'm not going to like it. And I think I know exactly why.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I totally hear you. It's weird to see it called scenes from a marriage, but like the, the adjective Bergman esque is just not one I would use to apply it. Anything I'm seeing. Like I think about those close ups and, the Bergman version and how those are just so essential to like what that is
0: formally
1: even silence, the silence Mm -hmm. of moments with the, the camera painting along uh, a limb.
0: Yeah. I don't get the
1: impression. I'm going to see that here. And it kind of feels like a Juilliard, like acting show off thing where it's like, look what we can do rather than like uh, getting like, it feels like they're doing impressions. And I don't know if that's just me being more in tune with their performances now but i remember in 2014 when i like i couldn't get enough of these two and now i just mm-hmm. feel like they're doing impressions
2: yeah my surprise is very quickly morphing into dislike on live as we talk about <laughs> it uh i was just like so taken taken aback by it but uh yeah i'm totally with you this is uh this is odd
1: so we will try it um and we know we won't like it there we go. On to something a little bit more enticing and original. Titana.
2: right we just watched the trailer for tatan the latest from julia Ducournau. what do you think
1: uh we prefaced this before we started by talking about like how horny certain films are today or um you know mm. how how sexy or sex less um they might be and you know death in venice is coming up the last picture show is coming up um both quite horny this film also quite horny um Titan is, I think it's Titana, I'm not confident, I've never heard anyone pronounce it out loud, Um, is a film in which a woman sleeps with a car and has a child. I didn't really get the synopsis from the trailer, but it mm. looks awesome and pulsy and atmospheric, and sleek and sexy and all the original types of things that I like to see. And kind of this more avant garde experimental, risk-taking uh, cinema. It it just looks um, like stylized and in, in a really informative way of the genre that it's at work in. Um, I I don't really know how to take in the synopsis um or like even how seriously we're supposed to take it this Mm. is definitely a different direction than i expected from after raw um Mm. you know that's a lot more of a quiet kind of slowly unraveling film and this seems like it's a pretty frenetic jump around um at the start but i am entirely thrilled by it and hopefully i'll be able to cover this one at the uh, toronto international film festival next month in september
2: I'm right there with you. I am stoked for this one. I think you saw me pick up my phone when we were watching it, and that Mm -hmm. was only to see what year it was that Raw came out, because that does feel like a long time ago. I feel like this is a long awaited follow up to Raw. Five years, that's a long time between two movies. Um, Was it really? 2016, according to IMDb. At least that's when it first premiered. I don't know when it finally got theatrical here we did I don't remember that would have been one of the very first ones
1: yeah that would have been like Gaspar Noé days
2: yeah um but uh also to tie back to something we were talking about earlier which was our retrospectives and our 1996 potential
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh retrospective I think one of the films we had either be a candidate or maybe made the, the final cut was Cronenberg's uh crash mm-hmm. did we
1: get that in there we did that that's one bound in one other I'm on I sh- I, sh-
2: I should have checked beforehand but I keep hearing about a uh, crash in relation to this one um just for the connection of uh sex and car crashes all wrapped up into one narrative and theme um uh, but yeah I think it looks dope and just you know sensory wise the, the 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 textures metallic surfaces versus flesh that's all going to be i think very um uh Activating in terms of uh, the sensory experience of it, so I'm pretty stoked.
1: I am too. I you you piqued my interest, so let, let me see what this last title is. A Summer's Tale from Eric Romere. There. Oh, it
2: is. different beast there.
1: Yes. So we got Crash Bound and uh, Conte Dete or A Summer's Tale. Yeah. Coming up uh, later this year, um, but for now, let's get back to. 1971
0: it's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter
2: i know that kind of man it's hard to hold the hand of anyone
0: who's reaching for the sky just to surrender
1: all right, Michael, you ready for me to blow your mind just a, a little bit, maybe, and uh, just kind of set the scene?
2: We have some historical events to ground us in the year
1: 1971. Yep, I just uh, get a little bit of a sense of the Veldgeist the and the Zeitgeist going on at the time. Yeah. So 1971, January 1st, I think is what I read, cigarette advertising becomes illegal on radio and television. This mm. is that year. Manson, charged with the Tate and LaBianca murders. Mm. One month after sentenced to death, California changes their death penalty sentences to be commuted Mm. to life sentences for all prisoners.
0: Wow.
2: Never knew that.
1: I didn't either. Apollo 14, successful moon mission. A secret taping system is installed in the White House by President Richard Nixon. Mm. Muhammad Ali. Loses his first fight after a 31-fight win streak to Joe Frazier. Mm. An amendment is approved by the U.S. Senate to lower the voting age to 18. Mm. Little bit news close to home. Starbucks has found it.
2: Happy to hear that. I I, I appreciate a good Starbucks drink.
1: April 24th, the unforgettable event in this 1971 timeline is the march on Washington, D.C. by 500,000 anti-war protesters. Another 125,000 march in San Francisco. It becomes the largest demonstration against the United States war in history. Excerpts from the Pentagon Papers begin to be published by the New York Times. The War on Drugs is declared by Nixon. Washington state becomes the first state to ban sex discrimination. Mm. This 1971 timeline wouldn't be complete without the opening of Disney World. In Orlando, Florida, Walt Disney World opened on this day, becoming the most visited vacation resort. In 2018, the attendance had more than 58 million people. The D.B. Cooper plane hijacking event occurred this year, and the jail term of Jimmy Hoffa. Is commuted by President Richard Nixon. Mm. Uh, a world event that's also notable is Switzerland finally allows women to vote, not in all elections, but in some.
2: In some, but not all. Wow, that's incremental in terms of progress.
1: So that, you know, I think that does set us back fifty years. That definitely, um, you know, it's it's a different point in time. But now you can just kind of realize, like the moon landing's still fresh. We just went back you know the m- most unpopular war even still probably is you know occurring um you know it were 18 years after the end of the Korean War which will come back in um, the last picture show it's it's 1971 michael
2: i was looking at the top grossing movies of 1971 two of our three movies were in the top 21 One of those was in the top 10. Do you want to guess which ones were in the top 21 and which one made the top 10?
1: Death in Venice was not. Last Picture Show was in the top 21. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, top 10.
2: Last Picture Show was in the top 10. Really? Just barely. That was in number nine. And McCabe and Mrs. Miller was 21.
1: Oh, I know why now that I think about it. What is that? I'm going to guess it's because Sybil Shepard gets topless in The Last Picture Show, and that probably sold a lot of tickets for teenagers.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, the that production company, BBS, you know, who was behind Last Picture Show, is the same one that did like Easy Rider, and I think that was one of the, like, uh, maybe conditions that was put on Bogdanovich, was I think there had to be some kind of... Uh, nudity because they thought they could sell that to youth audiences which
0: makes a lot of sense this is the
1: point in time where um god the second run theaters were like just printing money for a lot of companies and like um gosh what's the the eddie murphy dolomite is my name um oh the original yeah yeah right like it it was
2: it just called dolomite can't remember that's what i'm thinking like
1: was it um but that i don't think it was um but that that was another one that just printed money you know in these second run theaters going around so i can i can see why that would be um, an angle and he managed to make it you know magnificent
2: yeah the number one grossing movie of 1971 according to the numbers.com that is my uh, truth of or my source of truth here who knows if this is accurate billy jack never heard of that
1: i haven't either is that like a children's film maybe from disney or something it's classified
2: as a western from warner brothers Wow. Followed by Fiddler on the Roof. A, then a Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, French Connection, uh, Summer of 42 is number five. Never heard of that. Carnal Knowledge, Dirty Harry, A Clockwork okay. Orange, Last yeah, Picture well, Show. That's
1: interesting because Clockwork didn't come out till December. So oh, the fact that, that, that you year, even right? made that list is incredible. Yep. Because um, that's like a week to work with. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's an, Yeah, that is interesting. Um, which I think might have just... Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, I, I didn't know that. That's a good call.
1: Um, anyways, McCabe and Mrs. Miller.
2: This is the second Altman title that we've discussed on the show after a long talk about shortcuts. And I understand you are becoming quite the fan of Mr. Robert Altman.
1: You can call me an addict, this, and I don't want help. <laughs> did this cement his position there? Um, less so than other entries, but it, it definitely cements my respect for him as auteur. Um, mm. th- this is maybe one that I didn't respond to as highly, especially like early on. It was like cinema that I greatly appreciate, but i am not personally like drawn to the way that I I was with shortcuts or um. Gosh, now that that title that I watched from 1995 or six is eluding me. Um, Cookies Fortune. Oh, mm-hmm. Cookies Fortune. Right. Like that's that's the thing that gets me. It's a little bit trite. It's a little bit fanciful, but it's it's just buckets of earnestness. And this is really a, a period piece that's like serious kind of slow cinema. Um, and, you know, the payoff is great and immense, really incredible moments um, An incredible location. Um all that stuff is at work, but it's there, it just lacks that little bit of a thing that makes it, you know, a, f- a personal favorite. But I, oh my gosh, historically significant in every way.
2: Yeah, I think it, it took me a little while to get my bearings in this movie. Um, even though like you kind of know that about this movie, if you like are familiar with like its initial reception and how people are always talking about like how you can't hear anything that people are saying, especially at first, in some of those first few scenes, you're like, what is even this story here? You're just seeing Warren Beatty uh, by himself, ride into this little town, start playing cards, drinking, can't hear a damn word anybody is saying. Um, So, like, this took me longer to kind of find my way into than something like uh, Shortcuts, which I think is pretty immediately, like, accessible.
1: Mm -hmm. 100, well, I mean... It, number one, it's simultaneous short stories that are contemporary-ish, and this mm-hmm. is you know not only a 1971 film, but a 1971 film that's a period piece about the frontier, and rather than, you know, even being um, formulaically um, beautiful, but but plain, maybe in the way that First Cow is, where like yeah. you can identify your main character clearly, and mm-hmm. their arc this is a lot more difficult to figure out if he's even your hero yeah um and really he never took on that role for me he just happened to be the individual that was going through this experience and that's kind of why i love altman is because he can do that he can show you like in the player kind of a victim (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: um, I thought a lot about First Cow, too, partly just because of the setting. I think the setting is mm-hmm. one of the best things about this movie. You, you think of westerns. do You think about the desert, usually. I think about Utah. Don't think about the Pacific Northwest as often. But, yeah, some of these um, images of uh, the just the the wooded Pacific Northwest looks looks like uh, right out of First Cow. First Cow is almost more like – Um, there's almost something more magical about that where,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, and Miss Miller can look kind of terrible sometimes and how cold it looks Mm -hmm. and just miserable. Um, and then you kind of go into some of those cabins, these log cabins, and because of the kind of glow of the cinematography, it can suddenly feel very warm. Like, I don't know if I'm actually, if I actually feel more, uh, like repelled by the coldness and the misery of the snow and the rain, um versus sometimes the interiors are really kind of alluring because of how almost kind of cozy they look. It's a real kind of mix of feelings I have, just depending on the shot.
1: Yeah, and I mean, depending on the interior shot, like, I go from, like, that idea of a warm feeling to, like, I don't know, is this, like, going to smother me to death? Like, Mm. these walls seem to be closing in awfully tight. Um, And I I think that there's a particular scene that's, like, really low, warm lighting um where he's just descending down a staircase in the cabin and like it as he goes down he's getting closer to the lens and like it just it really starts to to feel like um you know those those cabins as comfortable as they are like they're they're kind of prison cells because there's Mm. that's like all you can do um one particular moment that I really appreciated is near the end of the film when they're all outside, um, and like the fiddles are going and there's this um gosh, I think the the character's played by Renee, I don't remember his last name, and he's dancing on the ice and he's like constantly slipping and almost mm-hmm. falling continuously. And like that's that's those little things that Altman will get in a movie that really like sell you on the place, the period, the lack of anything to do, and the like the the little colloquialisms that a, that a place comes up with.
2: Yeah, 100%. You mentioned the character I was just about to bring up. That's why I had to pull up my phone again. Um and the actor's name is Rene. Um the character you mentioned is named Rene uh, Aubergé Noir and uh and he caught my eye because he's in First Cow, too. Um Is he really? I think a side character in First Cow. I I can't remember his place in that narrative, but um I thought that that was immediately striking and just made me think about how directly First Cow is kind of riffing on this as another story about, you know, two individuals trying to start and run a business in the frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, having um, – had we seen this one beforehand, I might have appreciated First Cow even more than I already did. I think that's a pretty cool connection or a very fun connection.
1: Yeah, I think I would too. And it does feel – Very similar. Um, I know you're not a gamer, but I thought a lot about Red Dead Redemption too. Mm. Um, There's there's like a particular town that like is almost constructed like just like this town. Like I I remember like a low hanging bridge that I think just goes over the ground. Kind of mm. like there is here. And it just thinking that it was kind of a weird thing to do um, between the mill and the brothel and the church and the, the sheriff's office. Um, and now I kind of appreciate it more and, and do wonder if there's, like, there must be some homages in that that game with all of its missions to
0: this film. Mm.
2: Yeah, there are some really um, beautiful just aspects of this frontier town that bridge is definitely one of them it just looks so authentic that looks like a just a rickety rope bridge that i would not want to walk over to get across that lake um especially some of the shots towards the end when it's like it's snowing it's just like a blizzard at the end and the the church is really prominent in some of those shots really really beautiful um the music all this Leonard Cohen music, um, especially the fact that it's played Amazing. so good, the fact that it's played like right off the bat just sets this mood that's really kind of downbeat, um, which is probably a word I'll, again I'll use again when we talk about Last Picture Show. Um, but between those two movies in particular, this kind of downbeat, kind of cynical tone just seems to very much reflect the era's kind of disillusionment and. Um, Anti authority and anti establishment sentiments. Um, They feel particularly representative of the era.
1: I I think that you could really boil all that down into like one sentiment, anti war sentiment. I I I think more than anything, right? Because, um, you know, you could say our protagonists, like in all of these films, either die or uh, live a life that, or go on to live a life that might not have any real meaning to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that that's what these films are concerned with or focused on at, at this point in time is it's just interesting. You know, I mean, like d- just the juxtaposition of like, we're finally going to ban cigarettes from advertising. OK, now let's start a war on drugs, which can't even advertise like just in another war while you're in the middle of a war. Like how dumb can you you know, it's just. These ideas that are in the the culture at the time and how they, they must have affected, especially someone as outspoken as Altman with his um, particular viewpoints on things and who he thinks is idiots. You know, he literally made a movie about how stupid he thinks Nixon is. <laughs> mm. Which one is that? Uh. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it, it, he did it in conjunction with a college. Um, and it was kind of like a, a one room like student film thing. And he did mm-hmm. it with... Um, Philip Baker Hall. That's it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I was picturing his face, but I couldn't yeah, remember his name. Yeah it's, yeah, it's
1: an incredible, like, one-man show performance piece. I really wish that I remembered the name of it. I watched it in a couple goes while I was working out at the gym with commentary, and it's just, it's a hell of a film. But, um, that, like, you can't help but think of his outspoken modes at work here. It's not just that the mining town is coming. to t- It's that there, you know, he our hero is even kind of the quote unquote oppressor of this town. Like he's the, Mm -hmm. he's the one that owns everything and is telling people what to do and kind of taking people on rides. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's a very, and you know, he's uh, before he was here, he was a famed gunslinger who killed, you know, the individual who comes after him's best friend or his best friend's best friend. Um, So there's, there's deeper stuff at work here and in all these following period piece films that really you know i can't shake the um the the zeitgeist of this specific moment no matter how trite and tired that word is
2: yeah yeah you know and some of the things i think about when i think about westerns are sort of you know the frontier as a land of opportunity and and promise mm-hmm. uh and you know untamed possibilities and you know when you hear this described as an anti-western like that that seems like the right label when it's ultimately about these this business that is crushed in the end. It's very bleak uh kind of uh cynical. I had to use that word again, ending. Um, that's uh oh, it almost feels kind of like bleak kind of bleakly comic in a way. Um <laughs> especially just because of how Kind of pathetic, Warren Beatty's character McCabe can be sometimes. He thinks he has the upper hand when the negotiations start with uh, the businessmen who want to come and buy out his town, and then he starts. Did briefly, he did. You're right. He blew it. He blew it. Um, Well, it's not
1: just that he blew it. It's that that one older gentleman got fed up.
2: Right, right. Um, But then it it feels like it's all kind of backpedaling from there until he's until he just dies in the snow. This is all spoilers. We're talking about
1: 1971
2: here. Yep. Um, <laughs> you had 50 years
1: <laughs> cast. <laughs> you had all kinds of time.
2: Yeah. Um. But I th- I think he's great. I think Julie Christie's really great. Oh, yeah. Um. Really, and and all these side characters who again just seems so authentic, but also very 70s at the same time. Um. It's a it's a fun uh, fun cast.
1: Yeah, it's like it, it is very much like a 70s kind of riff. Um. You know. W- You just mentioned you picked it up, and I've been reading through Once Upon a Time um, in Hollywood and just kind of, you know, thinking more broadly about the the actors who are playing these guys and what's going on in their heads at at this point in time is a little bit interesting to me. Um, And, you know, there's nothing to make an actor seem believable than building as real of sets as these really are. You know, we haven't mentioned her name yet, but um, kind of a cult icon. Shelly Duvall is mm. a supporting character in this film and um I still don't really know what to make of her like she's very much like just a rep like a a, a bigger than the other character's representation of being a victim mm-hmm. um and also you know she gives an opportunity to Mrs. Miller's character to tell her like you know what she thinks prostitution is good for and that you can live your own life and not have to answer to anybody um and you know there's there's interesting you know feminist lines at this point in time where she's like you, you know you don't have to sleep with him just because you're married like that's not actually your duty um there's little you know bits of the culture that are that are prevalent at this point in time channeled into the dialogue by altman Mm. i I would have to assume and then there's kind of the idea of altman as punk you know he's like Mm. okay you just mentioned some movie that we've never heard of that's a western that was the best selling film and it's like Okay, I'll I'll take that, and I will make a western so that it sells well, and I will make it as anti-western as I can possibly be, and uh, anti, you know, violence and anti-war and pro-sex and all the stuff that Altman really stands for. But get away with it because there's no way you can deny it.
2: Yeah, and very unglamorous. And yeah, again, with regard to Shelley Duvall, it seems like some people are experiencing all the lack of glamour, you know, worse than others. At least McCabe has the giant fur coat, you know. Mm -hmm. Shelley Duvall always just looks like she is just not happy. Um, And I think about like when...
1: Which role or just in general?
2: (laughs) Just in general, to be honest. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Uh, Very true. I also think about when Julie Christie's new prostitutes are first arrive and it's raining and it's muddy and they're like walking up to the to the brothel that's been built and it just looks terrible mm-hmm. um, and how unlike that is uh, how unlike that is um, from you know images of westerns and you know your cowboys on horsebacks uh, taming the frontier. It's like this is a the polar opposite kind of vision.
1: right but where did they come from?
2: Uh, what do you mean? Where did what the come from? The uh, prostitutes. They came from,
1: I don't remember. Seattle. Oh, did they come from, oh yeah, I guess I forgot about that. Yeah. So, and I I wish that I knew particularly what period of time this was, but I mean, if you look at Seattle history, you know, we were the last stop on the way to, for the Alaskan gold rush. So mm. like, um, that's also why our city has literally no city planning at all Mm. it was a nightmare um but we apparently at one point in time had like the the best prostitutes this side of louisiana or whatever
0: Mm. and
1: you you know like this is just where all the gold would kind of congregate and it's just Mm. so interesting to think back in time to like those maybe 10 or 30 years where everything was still you know, um unsettled, but there were like these big giant outposts by the ocean mm. that were known for these things and kind of ethereal. And then, you know, a, a steamer that's not on um tracks would, you know, mm. show up in the middle of a forest and unload a bunch of prostitutes. It's just like it's totally wild. And yeah. it like you don't even get a chance to second guess it in the film. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Uh do you find McCabe to be a likable figure?
1: He yeah, he's like Tim (laughs) Robbins in the player. He's a likable piece of shit,
2: likable piece of shit. I like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like he's, he's very much not someone that you would trust as a friend. But like, he's, he's a little bit endearing. And you can like, kind of understand his weakness and his foibles um, for what they are. But like, you wouldn't want him as a friend.
2: Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's a good way to put it. The, there's an arrogance there for sure where he thinks he's going to come out of these negotiations uh, on top. Um, and it really feels like the second she shows up, Julie Christie is sort of the one with the brains on, on how to run this operation. And she's she sees him more as just kind of a necessary uh, business partner rather than like mm-hmm. a real contributor to this operation. Um,
1: Someone to handle the guns.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's an amusing um, partnership, which, again, is more in contrast than in comparison to the partnership we get in First Cow, which is such a sensitive and um, collaborative kind of partnership. These almost feel more like, like reluctant allies in in some way in uh,
1: McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know what this made me think of? Hmm it made me long for the future when this great up and coming film director that we don't know the name of yet th- that's anti-establishment like Altman makes an anti-superhero movie within mm. the superhero genre mm. and then goes on to make great films
0: <laughs> i will be ready for that
1: um the one like thing that i i when it started i was like oh this is okay and then it continued and i i increasingly grew to dislike it is the uh, like patently fake snow effect the snow flurry Mm. effect at the end of the film um i understand why you would do that for atmosphere and everything but i think that there there's like a certain point in time where you don't need the idea of the blizzard to continue because everything is so frosted um Mm. how did you respond to that effect I
2: actually thought it looked great. Those are some of my favorite shots in the movie. Like once he McCabe is running away from these, I guess bounty hunters at the very end. Those are some of my favorite shots. Um, just too artificial for you. Yeah,
1: that's the thing. Like the first couple minutes, I'm like, okay, sure. We need we need to set the idea that it's snowing, and then it just never went away, and it it increasingly looked more and more fake as the lighting changed behind it. And Mm. that's when it it got to the point where I was like, I don't think this is the best choice.
2: Yeah, I can appreciate the just not liking of the images, but I think you gotta have the snowfall because of how important it is for McCabe in the end to be dead and left to just be buried under the snowfall and that Mm -hmm. being sort of just kind of like the punchline in a way of this. Story not about uh, a, the American dream being realized, but instead the complete failure of this guy to um, to do it or to be protected by the law as he pursues his his business opportunity, and instead to just be left left to the earth to be to be forgotten.
1: Or, or he magically transforms into a briefcase of money and is later the star of Fargo
2: that you're uh that you're going with that's my pitch. Okay. Okay. I like that. Um one of my favorite anecdotes that I've heard about this movie is that Warren Beatty was like a, a, he's well, he was kind of a control freak and would want to do scenes over and over again whereas Altman was like we got it. We're good. Let's move on. Uh-huh. He would always want to do it again. But then Altman eventually kind of uh turned that around on Warren Beatty for that last scene where it was so miserable and cold and Warren Beatty (laughs) had to keep falling in the snow and Altman would be like let's do that again. Try it again Warren. Uh, I thought that was pretty amazing. That's great. That
1: sounds just like Robert. Um, (laughs) I didn't get a chance to check the notes but I think that his son Stephen is the one that's normally in charge of um, doing all of the production um, building stuff and Mm -hmm. like I have to imagine they built this town from scratch and to choose such a location where the, the exterior lighting is kind of like its own character. Um, I I think it's just really astute. Like how many location scouts and production designers are going to work together to figure out how to get the right, like noonish lighting or the right twilight lighting. It's just, Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's little things going on in a craftsman perspective that really allow Altman to just kind of, um, shoot from the hip here and and make it a Western from the camera style. Like you feel Mm -hmm. like he's making a lot of kind of on the fly choices about where he wants to capture some of these characters just to tell the broader story of the town. Um, and those interiors, like the, the, um, when they're all taking a bath, um, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, a great lead into what eventually they occurs within that bathhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the shotgun blast to the arm inside the church, you know, uh, that that's maybe the one thing that I think was, um, flawed is that you didn't really spend enough time in that church to kind mm. of make the fire event and everything there really feel like it mattered. Like I, I didn't get the impression that it mattered as much to the town as they tried to sell it at the end.
2: Mm, that's fair. I could see that. Um, yeah, it kind of becomes
1: a focal like, point rather It seems like if the, like the, the whorehouse got on fire. Like, I could see that mm. reaction, but the church, I don't know. Julie like, Christie would be very unhappy much. about that. Right, but I think all the mm. townspeople would like be, oh my god, it's on fire, <laughs> but the church is like, you know, I haven't seen like too many of to you folk. in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: a very <laughs> fair
2: point. They don't, yeah, they don't seem like church-going folk at all. Um, dang it, what was I about to say? Oh yeah, I, I don't know, I was just thinking about, you know, how striking some of the violence might have been at the time, particularly the the gunshot, the guy getting shot off the bridge. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, to, you think about Warren Beatty. Um,
1: Bullet in the stomach. Uh,
2: yeah. And, and, you know, well, him uh, being in Bonnie and Clyde, the film that really kind of like kicked off a new kind of on screen violence um, and how he seemed to just uh, kind of like follow that material in a way. Yeah. Um, it's just that that I think that's striking. Um, the the degree to which it does ultimately become quite violent. Um, uh, yeah, it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's, you know, upper tier Altman. It's not my favorite Altman. Um, I'm getting the impression we're about to move on. Do you have a favorite scene?
2: Do I have a favorite scene? I do like the standoff on the bridge between one of the bounty hunters. It's the child bounty hunter, right? Mm -hmm. Not child. He's like a teenager. He seems like the younger of the three. And he uh, shoots this man off the the rope bridge. Yeah, and I think that's your cue that things are about to get real for McCabe. And it's time for him to uh, try try and skedaddle if he can. Yeah. I think there's some slow motion there. As the guy tumbles off the mm-hmm. bridge, uh, it just feels, seems like the mood is really shifting. And I think he,
1: he hits the water and then he comes back up. And I think that's in slow motion. Too. He's
2: struggling. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. just die right away. Um, that's that one's pretty striking. What about you?
1: Mine takes place right before that. I think when um, McCabe is um, struggling to negotiate against himself with a man who's not there to negotiate. Mm. Um This is directly following his failed negotiations with the representatives, and then um, the fellow who was going to to buy him out um, shows up in town, and he begins to deliberate and attempt to give him a cigar. The man instead gives him the cigar. He, um, you know, just... He thinks that he's having this negotiation process of how much he's going to sell for, and he keeps talking himself down to a man who's remaining totally silent and saying things like, oh, so you guys weren't that far apart, were you? Um, And and things like this that are are just like really um, like clever brooding lines um, Mm. as you see a man who's smarmy squirm in his britches and eventually um, he sidles out of the room and um, with his tail between his legs as he realizes that he's kind of done for. And I think in that moment, he also knows that if he doesn't leave, he's probably going to die and he chooses not to. Um, And I, I think that. All the the stakes there and also just the delivery from Beatty to be so, so weak is, it, it's delicious.
2: Oh, yeah. I'll make one more point just because I had forgotten and then uh-huh. I remembered, which was, again, a First Cow connection. And one of the things I liked least about First Cow was the opening with Alia Shawkat finding the, bones? the two skeletons. Yeah. And it just, I just felt a little out of place. But now that feels like even more of a direct homage to um, First Cow because of where First Cow begins in where McCabe ends with um, McCabe being buried. His story, you know, gonna he he will be kind of lost to history. Um, and Reichardt instead is kind of using that as her um, beginning kickoff, yeah, to her story. Um, so I think. Yeah, that seems like a Dust consistent off these theme. Old bones. Yeah, the, the cinematic myth,
1: bones and real bones.
2: The myth of, you know, people building great things and being remembered for it. I think both these movies are kind of tossing that to, side, to the side and saying more usually dreams are not realized and you're forgotten about. And that's why they're kind of like anti Westerns.
1: Yeah. I. The, the further distant I get from First Cow and the more like films that may have had anything to do with it, even before this, the more I'm starting to like appreciate it more. And like, mm. I think that what I want to do is revisit it in another nine years. Like I want to <laughs> wait a decade because I, I think I'm going to come up on it. And I think the longer I wait, the more I'm going to appreciate it.
2: Good stuff to come then.
1: All right. On to Death in Venice.
0: two great artists of the 20th century. Thomas Mann, the writer. Lucchino Visconti, the filmmaker. Two artists combined to tell the story of an artist.
2: This is a Luchino visconti film, and I understand you did your homework this time around and read the original text from this film. Is that yes, accurate?
1: Yes, I read the book uh, one and a half times, um, just due to timing. I, I couldn't finish it, but I didn't really need to. I, I needed to go through that first half again after knowing the ending. Um, the ending is obviously maybe the most critical point. But within the book itself, um, I, I really think the interiority that Munn writes it with, um, you, you miss a little bit when until you know who the character is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that character is Gustav von Ochenbach. Um Yeah, this is a film about a, well, it's an adaptation of a book, but it's about an author who has to take a forced holiday due to his health. And he decides within the film, he doesn't decide he happens to begin on a steamboat headed to Venice within the novel itself. He kind of has to decide and he picks Venice for kind of a, a, you know, a a bullshit reason in his own head. You know, he just kind of talks himself into it. Solid choice. Locations. Um, and we're off to the races and I, I mean, we can really just start on the steamboat, um, you have not read the novel, correct? It's correct. So correct. you don't know how much the steamboat was missing. Um, mm. But that that character at the end, before he departs the steamboat, do you remember this this older gentleman who is um, made up quite heavily, older even than von Aschenbach, and he's, yeah, yeah. he's got the the rouge and the hair dye and perhaps the false mustache and the false teeth. And mm-hmm. th- this is um, th- there's maybe five six pages just spent on mm. on this character and like the steamboat within the novel um which is kind of eschewed here um in lieu of a more broad non-narrative style where you're just kind mm-hmm. of observing von Aschenbach um dutifully suffering his way along his his journey which is ex- exactly what happens in the novel mm-hmm. but this is the the predecessor to what he becomes and w- within the novel he and I, I mean within the film he's visibly um, taken aback by this man who is old and attempting to look young. He's kind of disgusted by this individual. And it's, it's that disgust that turns Mm. into who he becomes that is so critical. Mm. Um, And this man was acting young and he was hanging out with all these younger boys and visiting and having a, a jovial time. And you have to wonder if perhaps he is more heroic than von Aschenbach because von Aschenbach actually never utters a word
0: mm, that's and never spends
1: the time and has the joy. Mm. Um, so I, I do think that's like a crucial thing to start with on the steamboat because that character mm. is more and more important the more I think about it.
2: Yeah, because those scenes are pretty brief on Extremely the brief steamboat. in the film. Yeah, 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 you're like you
1: only spend a moment with him.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. Mostly it was just like that dude was weird, and then he's out of the scene pretty yes. much. So a little more integral to the original text, it sounds like. Um, right off the bat, you get the uh, Mahler and Beethoven. I think it's mostly Mahler, maybe some Beethoven. Mostly Mahler. Um, you
1: do get some Beethoven.
2: Yeah, um, you you hear that right off the bat when we're on the steamboat. Um, that's like so kind of essential to the feel of the movie between the the classical music and just all of this really lush um, or lavish rather uh, like turn of the century European uh, decor and costumes. I'm really sort of um, pulled into this movie just kind of by the setting itself and all these zooms that we get pretty quickly um, as he's kind of setting the scene and, and um, bringing – uh, Gustav into Venice. Um, I was very allured by some of the camera work, and I probably never would have made the connection to Altman if we didn't pair this movie with an Altman movie. But all the zooms was like this almost feels more like an Altman movie to me than McCabe did at first. Um, but they're very uh, compelling. That's for sure.
1: Interesting, mm. interesting. I was waiting for the Hong Sang Soo comparisons, but they, they oh that come. Pay- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean the the opening shot, which is that steamer is uh, a picturesque l- luxuriant thing. like w- when I saw that I was like, oh is this gonna be like one of my favorite movies ever? Mm. And then it it lost that luster. but I mean it starts out looking gorgeous and the mm-hmm. equally the last the beginning and the last shot of the films are, are some of the most beautiful shots in film. I think like, um, I I've probably said it way too many times, but I'll say it once again, those are moments where you just hit print and you frame it and you put it Mm -hmm. on the wall and it belongs there, especially if it's an art museum. Mm -hmm. Um, we get off the steamer and into, um, you know, just a a canal cruiser. I don't remember the proper term for those. Um, Mm -hmm. and the fellow who's steering it is, um, Doing so illegally, he does not have a license mm. to row uh, the canals of Venice, and um, they have this this great back and forth um, in the novel that I think is okay here. Um, I I don't know how I feel about Gustave constantly kind of f- flaring his nose and screwing up his his face acting mm. upset without any of the interiority of why he's upset. I think mm. that if you've never even read the book, it, it kind of reads as idiotic mm. in a way that's like buffoonish that the novel doesn't feel that way at all. And I've, I've now gone through one and a half different translations of it. Um, and like, there's, there's clearly different interpretations and I, you know, I, I do question whether Visconti read it in the original text or if he had a translation and, and how that affected the performance that he asked um, from that actor, because it, it's a little bit garish in moments. Um, and I mean, what else can you ask him to do besides to look puzzled and upset? Because that's literally half of the book is him being puzzled and upset. I'm completely with <laughs> you there.
2: I went back and forth in my head About whether or not I thought this was a good performance or a bad performance. And I ended up not really deciding one way or another, but I did find it to be kind of just an unpleasant character to unwatch in maybe an interesting way because he does look just constantly uncomfortable and frustrated and just uncomfortable in his own body. And that's partly because we eventually realize he's literally in a physical decline, but he's so stiff and rigid. Um,
1: Oh my goodness. So the fact that you don't even know means mm. that like they did a terrible job with this movie. Within the novel, yes, he goes through physical decline, but do you know why?
2: As to what, uh, like what he has, you mean, or what? Yes, yeah, the reason uh, why he dies. No, not really. I assumed I don't know. Like in the literal last scene, it seems like he's just had like a heart attack or something like that. That's his, that's. His as much as I can offer.
1: Yeah, so with within the novel, and there's a few asides that, like, very briefly, and don't spend enough time on this, um, there's, like, a red tide going on while he's mm. in Venice. And, mm-hmm. like, the shellfish um, is, is noxious or whatever. And then a... Um, and that, like, has an odor. And then you start noticing more and more police on the streets and less and less people. Well, there's, like, a, a disease going around town, and people are dying. And like mm-hmm. almost all the Germans leave and all the mm. English have left. And um, that's he, – he gets the disease that is going around in Venice and he, mm. he dies from it oh, because he stays so long looking at eternal mm. youth or beauty.
2: Interesting. I thought he was sick to begin with. He and
1: that was. was- Okay, okay. So, yeah, they so I mean got he didn't have a good of of immune system, but then he he got the disease that was literally killing people. You know, I which see. is an interesting timeline.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: He, he
2: was he was already in bad shape and then he got sick we got more sick. That's not yeah. great. Um just a gradual, painful, uncomfortable decline. Um Yeah, and what I guess I kept getting a little tripped up on in this movie, and that's partly just because I'm still kind of chewing on it, is sort of what's literal and what's metaphorical, because sometimes I thought to myself, is whatever is happening in Venice, whatever this disease is that's going around that everyone seems to be kind of hiding from tourists and also they're trying to scrub the, the streets and stuff. Sometimes I thought that that was almost more metaphorical of his own kind of physical demise, his own sort of um, deterioration. Um, sounds like that's just literal. It's just kind of in parallel and then he literally gets the disease that's going around. So no,
1: I, I mean – well, I, I don't know because you're talking about the film, but I can tell you that Munn w- was working on both levels. Yeah, so yeah, it's he, maybe a little bit like of both. One of the greatest novelists of all time. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, yeah, so I was getting the sense that maybe it was a little bit of both, but it's both literal, but also there is some a bit of a, a, yeah, bit how, of a metaphor. Yeah, how else here. do you
1: make a good metaphor than making it literally true?
2: Yeah. Um, and then the, the plot of the movie is. You know, superficially very easy to describe. He sees this young Polish boy who he um, is just utterly, completely captivated by. Without even talking to him, he's just completely absorbed by the beauty of this young boy. That boy's name is Tadzio. Tadzio. Bjorn Anderson, I think is the actor's name. And I would kind of go back and forth in my head between thinking this is a story about real queer lust and him genuinely being sexually attracted to this young boy and and he's so repressed that it's just like he's just miserable um, by this feeling Um, versus this all being a bit more of a a metaphor for artist and muse because we hear about him um, as a musician pursuing you know artistic perfection and beauty and sometimes it seems like the boy is more of a stand-in for you know like a the perfect greek sculpture or something like that um so i would kind of go back and forth between what's what seems more literal versus a little more metaphorical
1: so i can't speak on visconti because i do not know if visconti was a pedophile right um but and, yeah. I feel very comfortable saying Thomas Mann was not, and um, Thomas Mann was of the the like Austrian school that was very like Greek, uh, Apollonian, Athenian like influenced, and so Tadzio is this idea of this this thing that is grace and beauty that, that is eternal that cannot be captured, and if it were to be captured, it would decay, um, and it is this eternal pursuit of, of perfection and beauty. And, um, like the, yes, we, we all have an internal lust for, for that beauty, you know, whether it's, um, you live in in front of, you know, a a beautiful ocean scape and there's those perfect sunsets, you know, for a a few months, or if it's, um, that certain time of the year where you can get up and go on that specific hiking trail and the fall leaves look beautiful, you know, we're all looking for that thing. And, And as soon as you kind of grasp onto it and you say, this is it, it won't be the same the next day. Mm-hmm. And this this is what Munn was getting after, I, I think, you know, obviously art is objective. But I, I really think that that is the, the point of the original um, script that it's based on. But whether or not Lucino Visconti um, had more pedophilic leanings or um, not even necessarily that, but maybe he had, you know, the eye of he, he was trying to take like the eye of, of a woman and how. That would be viewed and kind of cross the two. I don't know. I'm I'm not familiar with Visconti enough. This is my first one.
2: Yeah. Um, I I mean I kind of got the idea that it's a little bit of both, and that's maybe why I don't really l- like it to, to a pretty pretty real extent. While I also find it formally very attractive and very compelling. Um, well, I mean it should uh, be
1: gross, right? This lust after a boy. Sh- it is perverted. I mean, very he per- very, he perverts very perverted him himself. Yeah in pursuit yeah. of of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um you know, like it's interesting that there is this inclusion of a scene where Gustav goes to I think I think it's a brothel and he ends up not sleeping it with anyone mm-hmm. or at least that we can see it seems pretty explicit that he does not. And to me that stands like it's almost kind of explicitly established there that he's disinterested in this sex with a woman and he's more Consumed with the thought of this young boy, so it seems pretty explicit that there is a true uh, desire here um, that can be pr- pretty uncomfortable. So you, I think you have to um, believe that Visconti's point is the the perversion here, and that is the man's undoing. But it can feel um, like like he's almost sympathizing with the guys. Um, uh, trouble and, and frustration at the same time so it's uh, it's 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 pretty muddy waters you have to wade through it feels like
1: yeah um I, I totally see how you could get there I think that in this specific situation like I really do benefit from not only having read this book but almost all of Mun's, um works and so I I know what his point is. Insofar as like the consensus. Now, whether that's really true, we don't know. We can't ask him. But I I can tell you that it wasn't a representation of heterosexuality and homosexuality. It was a representation of fulfilled physical sexual desire Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: idealistic desire of perfection. And Mm -hmm. he was eschewing the more vulgar um, bodily desire Mm. And he was pursuing the ideal desire that has no physicality, that has no expression, that doesn't even say words to the thing. It's just an observational suffering of beauty. And I think that that Visconti attempts to underline that with really ill-advised, poorly thrown-in flashbacks. Um, mm. Where they talk about like the merit of art and all that stuff, totally. it, you know that's that's his attempt to try to underline that point. And what it does is it totally subverts the original point of the novel by adding text that was not originally there.
2: Totally with you. I think those scenes don't work at all. Those feel very
1: I think dropped you, in since you were the other person talking. I think you were supposed to yell for everything you said.
2: I, totally. <laughs> um, th- there are some flashbacks I like a little bit more than others. But yeah, the ones where Gustav is talking to his um colleague, I guess, I don't know what else to call him, about, you know, um the pursuit of uh beauty being a sensory experience versus a spiritual experience. It's all kind of like good food for thought, but it feels so just kind of dropped in there because it's Visconti didn't know how to otherwise weave it in. Right, and it's um, like it's a
1: it's a sledgehammer to attack yeah right it's not even a nail it's like a little tiny tack and you're making like this very tactful point to to just go on the nose there with the tack metaphor but like you're you're blemishing the wall that you're hitting this so hard but i mean the other thing that i would point to is like you get actual flashbacks that show his sexuality is heterosexual for a woman
0: Mm. and that
1: she passed on and Mm. that now instead of fulfilling a lustful desire that is physical he is attempting to pursue this thing because what's the other thing he's doing this whole time? He's writing, he's attempting mm. to create perfection. And so he's trying to observe perfection and like be a, a channel for it. And I think that, you know, I mean, think about Thomas Munn, who's like perhaps one of the last great writers that didn't use words. Um, like he didn't use sentences. He used novels, y- you know, like mm. Hemingway used sentences to like, there's certain sentences from Hemingway that are like permanent. And and Thomas Mann would create novels that are permanent like mm. this. And so I, I think that he's trying to express that idea of trying to channel perfection and truth and beauty. And like y- you know, if you get too close, then then you are Icarus.
2: Mm. Um I, I lost my train. Oh, I was I was about to say I lost my train of thought. Then I got it back. The flashback that I do kind of like while we're on that topic is that we do eventually see – I don't know. Does the does the novel have flashback structure? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So in the very end, we finally see that uh, Gustav, prior to leaving for Venice, had this like terrible concert experience where he was booed off the stage basically. Um, that at least piqued my interest as what would ordinarily be the inciting incident for him um, – Fleeing to Venice, essentially, um, I was uh, appreciative of this kind of a chronological structure um, that I think is a little more effective in just kind of, kind of grabbing my attention than those other ones with Gustav and his colleague, where it just feels like the the ideas of the film are just being thrown out there rather yeah. than sewn in.
1: The the beauty of the novel is that it's a stream of consciousness, so he's constantly mm-hmm. ruminating, and that can go forward, contemporary, and backward. Mm-hmm. And so you end up getting an understanding of all this stuff without ever actually having to go to flashback, because he's sitting there in the canal, in the canoe, with his suitcases, upset, about two different things. He's upset that the driver isn't listening to him. And then he's upset about this memory that he has in his mind. That he's clinging on to. It mm-hmm. was a negative experience. And so that's where the genius gets lost. In the the visual adaptation. And I I, I did do some like critical reading on it. And um, I think Mike D'Angelo's point is the best point that I read. Which is like there there's just certain things. And this is one of them. That shouldn't and cannot be adapted to the visual medium. Mm. and um like i'm glad that i watched it but i i totally agree with that point like this did nothing but a disservice to the original work because it is of such merit the original work is
2: yeah um i think it starts to hit some diminishing returns after a while because so much of the movie is just gustav following Tadzio around and some of those shots are very sort of beguiling um as you're uh trying to kind of parse what exactly is going through Gustav's head as he's just totally totally kind of uncomfortable wishing he could connect with this kid or whatever. But there's there's only so much like enrichment of the experience for me without knowing more about the original text that I think it starts to almost be a little repetitive, to put it a little simply. Um uh yeah.
1: It it is repetitive and it's once again pulled off so much more interestingly, when you have the ruminations of the stream of consciousness of the novel, when it's mm. Munn's words telling you what Gustav is thinking, um, you know, and the the fact that like he's keeping Tadzio in frame of mind, but he's reflecting on something else. And then he he's thinking about the fact that he needs to to get work done, but he's worried about letting Tadzio out of his sight because what, what if he disappears and never comes back? Like there's all these little mm. things that he gets worried about. Mm They just don't translate like they do not translate through the camera lens. Um, But there there are, you know, these stunning images of the beach, especially near the end where he he is Mm -hmm. looking at Tadzio. But also we are looking at this beautiful beach that's just shot like a like a picturesque painting. And Mm -hmm. those are moments that I really enjoyed the the inner hotel stuff. I there's just a lot that suffers here. But I think that we're both speaking in a way that's very negative about a film that we're actually pretty positive on. I don't know about you. Mm -hmm. I I'm in like the 75 to 80 range on this one. Um, and you know, the more we talk, even though it's negative talking, you know, I come up on it because it's, it's like the risks that Visconti took. Um, and just the, the commitment that like the actor had to have, I, I respect the failure kind of.
2: Yeah, I, I think the, I think the craft is pretty incredible, um, especially for something that I'm kind of repelled by content-wise. Like I I cannot get my head, which is away. the beauty. Mm. Like,
1: oh, doesn't that mean it's mm. genius? <laughs>
2: I can't decide. Like, if if you really pitch it as something about artist and muse, then a, a guy's a, a attraction to a little boy just seems like a bad metaphor. Like, pick one that's less distracting in a way. And I, I don't well, know. Why that don't I, you
1: not view it as attraction to a little boy, but as um, a representation of eternal youth and um like the the just a, a physical representation of Adonis, not like specifically a little boy who has any sexuality to him because it's a very sexless admiration within the novel.
2: It is, it is. Um and I, I do think that's the point. Um it
1: uh yeah, I don't
2: know. It's just it's just a little messy for me in my head. Um because it it does seem erotic at times. Um and that's just what i what i see when i see which moment gustav looking at this kid um gosh i I, I, the beach beach scenes um uh you know i I don't know i I don't know that i have any particular scenes where it's like oh yeah he's clearly getting you know sensual pleasure from this it's just a generalized feeling i guess (laughs) um but uh yeah i'm with you i'm not trying to i I'm, I probably sound more negative on it than I really am.
1: I, th- I think that Tadzio is the son and that that Gustav is Icarus. That's that you know the the closer you get to this this perfection that that is in your head, understanding the the more right because he literally is changing himself to try to make himself feel younger. The the further away mm-hmm. he gets, you know, he becomes obsessed with the with this ideal and in so doing it, it unravels him because he's aware of this sickness and he chooses not to not to leave right and um within the novel and with within the film at the end as he's he's dying and becomes dead there's this you know one of the most genius things in contemporary storytelling since the 1500s There's this death event, there's this eternal beauty and youth in front of you, and there's this unused, empty camera, Mm
0: -hmm. just
1: on a tripod on the beach. And it just tells you everything you need to know. You could have taken a photo, you could have gone home, you could have lived forever, but you had to stay. You had to try to touch the sun instead of using a tool and getting close. Um, to it in an, in a synthetic way, you had the, you had to stay close to it, make yourself synthetic instead, and you killed yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: I'll try to say this one more time only to clarify my own thoughts, but I don't want to sound too repetitive either. I think it's that as a metaphor for this guy desiring eternal youth or or the youth he, he no longer has, obviously, as he nears death, that works for me. But that, the desiring of eternal youth, it's very different from him as an artist pursuing artistic perfection, which is what it sounds like he's talking about with his colleague. And yeah, on I that front, it seems like him desiring this young boy is a bad metaphor. But maybe these are two separate ideas that you kind of just have to manage in parallel and not get them mixed up, because otherwise, Well, that's that the gets thing, thing is that messy. there's so many
1: more. There's there's the the Greek Adonis, which is also true, and then there's like the Apollonian idealism, which is also you know kind of an amalgamation of those things. And then there's also the um, within the the film itself, the the juxtaposition of those flashbacks to his his own family, and um, y- you know you. You've been very focused on perhaps the, the sexuality of it, but what about the imagining of, you know, the the fatherly love mm-hmm. for the child? Like, there's there's just so much there within this, and that's why it, it is a work of genius, because no one can permanently agree on any proper interpretation. And the, the more, I, I think, specific you try to get, the more you actually lose from the point that... I don't know Visconti was making, but I can assert Munn was making, and I can defend myself on that, even if <laughs> he technically disagrees.
2: Definitely one I am still processing, having only finished it today. This one's very fresh for me.
1: It's um, I, I would recommend it, and I do hope that in the future we have enough time to go down a Visconti rabbit hole.
2: Definitely, definitely.
1: On to Bogdanovich's The Last
0: Picture Show. Mind and melt your cold, cold heart. Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Annerine, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era.
1: Boy, I love this movie, Michael. You just talked about how you finished watching death in venice today i finished watching the last picture show today as you were arriving and i gosh darned loved it i always knew i would kind of because of bogdanovich as a character and like the esteem that this is held in but i mean there's there's just the uncanny qualities to it that you can't really explain why you love the gosh darn thing so much but you do
2: I'm right there with you. Um, this is the second time I've seen this one. This is definitely one of my favorite movies. Like, top... If you ask me on any given day to put together a list of 20 favorites, top 10 even, it's it's way, way up there for me. I love this movie. Um, this is set in Annerine, Texas. This is our third period piece. We're in the early 50s. Um, it's this um, tiny, quiet, dying little Texas town with barely... Anything going on in it? Um, some of our key players are uh Jeff Daniels, he's he plays Jeff Bridges or Jeff Bridges, not Jeff Daniels, Jeff Bridges. Uh, he plays Dwayne, he's kind of like the one of the town pretty boys to me. He's the most handsome of the bunch. Uh, he's also kind of a doofus, definitely. Uh, young Jeff
1: looked a lot like a doofus, he's
2: like a senior in high school. He's dating Sybil Shepherd, her name's JC Farrow, JC Farrow. Dwayne's best friend is Sonny, played by Timothy Bottoms. He to me always looks like he just rolled out of bed. Yeah. Um, just, just I, I love that performance. Um, he never
1: got his duck tail.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a few members of the younger generation but, uh, with them. And then we have um, Sybil Shepherd's character's mom, played by Ellen Burstyn.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, we have Cloris Leachman, who is a housewife married to the like P.E. Teacher mm-hmm. at the high school that the younger kids go to, um, keeping
1: the tobacco company employed.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, who else am I forgetting? Some uh, of the key players. There,
1: I mean, not key player, but funny random aside is the fellow who takes Sybil Shepherd's character to the naked pool party is mm. Randy Quaid.
2: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: That's that's uh, one. And then um, main character wise, Ben Johnson who played Sam the Lion, who mm-hmm. ends up kind of defining the last quarter of the film, I'd say, by his death and who he bequeaths certain things to and how that kind of shapes the uh, the outcome of the film.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, shot in black and white, which I think is noteworthy, like, did not have to be, but I think that's interesting for just how it sort of um, at times feels like a classic Hollywood movie, um, especially certain close-ups um, that just feel like there's that real kind of the the kind of soft light, the kind of glow that could be on a character's face, um, especially when the especially on the kids when they're making out or something like that, that just feels very classic Hollywood to me.
1: I heard um, uh, Wells and Bogdanovich on the subject of this and why they were shooting in black and white say that it's because you can get everything in clear focus and tell like like a very clean story visually, um, and that. at at the point this point in time specifically um it really made things more tangible than a lot of other pictures and like he uh wells thinks that that's one of the main reasons why Kane was taken so so well Mm. is because of how clean and clear the cinematography even of the backgrounds was Mm -hmm. um and so i i think that it's interesting because both of these guys you really kind of have to interpret together i think
2: yeah um and to me it's very just thematically fitting like i feel like there's so much disappointment in this movie and just um frus- very frustration and regret um
1: who are we what are we doing where are we going
2: yeah that see black and white seems far more fitting than any bright color to me given the the mood of just kind of despair and disappointment that, that kind of hangs over this movie um which Yeah, it can feel like classic Hollywood, but to me can also feel like an Antonioni movie. And it's just kind of emptiness, like Antonioni in Texas. Like, that's awesome. I just love that. Um, And I I kind of see it as a coming-of-age film because we're watching these high schoolers, um, you know, prepare to kind of enter adulthood as they're finishing high school and thinking about what's ahead of them or what's not ahead of them. Um, but we don't get too many coming-of-age stories where we also get the perspective of the um, adult generation,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, which I really like about this movie. I think that just really enriches it as these kids are kind of looking forward and the adults are looking back. I think that's – I love that. And it makes
1: the, the sexual component of coming-of-age typical films like – they're normally incredibly trite, and this is like total – it's it's extremely rich to a point where you didn't even get all the fruit from it, and that's why it's genius.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some repetition that I love. Like right off the bat, we meet Sonny, the Timothy Bottoms, Timothy Bottoms' character, and he's uh, driving into town. He goes to the pool hall, and people keep mentioning to him and then Dwayne about the football game bad you, you
1: can't learn how to make a tackle.
2: They can't tackle. They just got crushed. And I love that idea that like they don't just—they might just plain suck at football, but it also feels like they maybe just don't even have the motivation to tackle. Like it just seems to fit with like this these young people's lack of get up and go. Like they mm-hmm. just don't see any reason to really tackle or do much of anything.
1: Right, but then that generation after them, they're they're. Great, right? That's what we mm. find out at the end of the film that the generation after them has has meaning and, and something to look look forward to, maybe if you want to take that tackling metaphor there.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Um and then when Dwayne eventually thinks he's gonna sleep with his girlfriend, JC, for the first time, and he s- struggles to perform and she gets mad at him. She's embarrassed and he just keeps saying, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened as he walks out of this like cheap motel room. Mm-hmm. That again just seems to like speak to a bigger feeling uh, about just disab- like just disillusionment. When you're a kid, you just have a certain idea for how those things are going to go. And then it's just not that special or or sometimes it's just not that special um, and how reality kind of hits um, mm-hmm. I love that moment.
1: <laughs> I do too, because there's so much going on in that moment. Um, right. Like it, it was built up because they'd almost gotten to it earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. And then she'd left him after the movie to go to the naked pool party and met a guy there who said to that she should call him once she's lost her virginity. Mm-hmm. And so Jeff Bridges character is just there to have sex with her so that she can lose her virginity and go out with this other guy who ends up getting married um, before they go back at it again. And it's just so terrible. Like, it, and it's so honest. And that's why it's so terrible. Like, it's just, it's really kind of next level genius. Um, I, I know that we're kind of dialed into the movie itself, but I do want to take mm. a step back and just two years after this, American Graffiti comes out. Like, Mm. I just feel I right when I started this movie, I was like, there's such a clear connection to American graffiti for me. Like which one mm. came out first and this one came out first, and I just feel like it had to have influenced Lucas. Um it, because of the reliance on cars, right? And the the
0: car mm. culture
1: thing. And in Texas, you know, it's obviously different. There's a lot more trucks, but like the defining thing about whether or not um Sonny had sex is because uh, Jeff Bridges' character had the the truck all the time, so that's why he couldn't mm-hmm. have had sex before he gets with Ruth. Um, and there's there's just you know outside the diner, um, there's a lot of stuff. You were talking about repetition, and another moment that I think really kind of sums up the film is. Um, Ellen Burstyn is at home sitting on the couch. This is the mother of Sybil Shepard's character. Mm-hmm. And she's bored and she goes and picks up the phone to see if she can sleep with someone who's not her husband. And that person's busy, I think, going to the pool hall. Mm. And then later in the film, like maybe halfway through, Sybil Shepherd is sitting in the same spot, bored, watching television. And a man comes over who's her mother's age and takes her out to the pool hall to sleep with her. And it's just, like, you're watching these people become the person that they don't want to be, Mm. and, like, they can't even fight it, um, or they're not aware of it, and there's just so much um, honesty in it. It's just so well written, directed, and edited, Um, Yeah, that those moments really, that moment in particular really spoke to me.
2: I love that. I hadn't – that hadn't really crossed my mind about her literally being in the same spot that we saw her mom in earlier. And she's – without even knowing it, kind of following in her mom's footsteps, literally taking her mom's sexual partner um, and Sybil Shepard then experiencing her own disappointment. Just like Dwayne had an idea for how their sleeping together would go. She thinks this older man will sweep her off her feet Mm -hmm. and then he kind of just – brings her home and dumps her at her doorstep and leaves yeah. um it can make it sound like a really like just miserable miserableist movie but i do feel like it's a very sympathetic and just a real movie i think there's a lot of truth in it even though it is a lot of disappointment kind of on top of each other
1: yeah i mean it's a it's like an honest look at youthful disappointment um and i, I mean especially in small towns like that at that point in time like if you didn't get out and you stayed like this is what your options are, um, you know, and, and you hear Sybil Shepard rattling off the, the names of different men that she can get married to because that's what she interprets her um, opportunities as. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Jeff Bridges starts roughnecking and then he goes off to the Korean War um, and Sonny takes over a pool hall that he inherits from Sam the Lion. Like these are all you're either inheriting something that really means nothing in a mm. town that is empty or you're leaving to go find something or you're seeking meaning from other people, which is what Sybil Shepherd's doing by trying mm-hmm. to find a different man.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I love at one point, uh, uh, Dwayne and Sonny do this like quick overnight trip, or maybe it's a weekend trip to Mexico where they just want to go party for a weekend. And we don't I, see. It's
1: while um, Sybil Shepherd's character is still at the pool party and he's having mm. that rough night. That he decides, like, you got 30 bucks, I got 40 bucks, let's go. (laughs) He just needs to get out. And there are
2: all kinds of reasons, narratively, like, why you might not show that scene. But again, it's like, you imagine them having a great time while Mm -hmm. they're in Mexico, but all we get is the hangover. The terrible coming back into town, to bad news, they look just like, they feel like dog shit coming back into town um it would be totally out of place mood wise to get that party scene we just get the come down Mm -hmm. which just feels terrible uh and they come back to bad news uh just feels like nobody can catch a break
1: i mean building on that there's the the idea of editing that you just addressed where like time lapses but like Mm. we go like three months four months Mm -hmm. of time without Any cue cards, and we have to suss it together from what they're saying. It's a little jarring. All of a sudden, it's Christmas. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh, did I fall asleep like in the middle of the movie?"
2: (laughs) Yeah, I remember thinking that too. I was like, "Did I miss something?" Um, Because it's not obvious. The time has passed, like it, like it has. Um, Yeah, uh, Cloris Leachman's character, I think, is even one of the most, most, one of the saddest characters, and really good. Um, And
1: we never find out what was wrong with her, do we?
2: Oh, physically, right? Because she's going to the doctor. She starts to maybe say what she is going through, but I don't think we ever hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: You mentioned uh, Easy Writer and that production company. Um, Mm. So the editor of Easy Writer was Don Cambern, who co-edited with Peter Bogdanovich on this film. Mm. So you were even more right, maybe, than you actually knew. Um, and that ends up making me wonder about those, because there, there did seem to be like a clear difference when we were getting the full frontal nudity scenes Mm. and like how that was being presented and like the, the undergirding of tone and like helplessness and despair to the story, it kind of changes and is exchanged for this more teenage, juvenile look at at breasts and Mm. penises at the pool um or the the earlier truck scene um with, Mm -hmm. with the nudity um but i i do admire bogdanovich's writing style to make even those moments that are kind of forced feel emblematic of being a teenager and you know this public show of nudity or you know Getting getting topless and then immediately deciding, you know, that you're going to break up with a boy. <laughs> totally.
2: I'm totally with you. I think that's just genius that he's, like, able to satisfy that requirement of mm-hmm. having some nudity to titillate audiences. But it's also not very titillating when he's – when Sonny's no, in depressing. that. it's depressing. It's so depressing. Sonny looks – Sonny and the girlfriend looks like they've just hooked Miserable. up so many times that it's just, like – an expectation they don't look excited about it at all
1: yeah she's like your hands cold and he's like
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) and at the pool party it doesn't feel like you're leering at her because you're more in her shoes and how just uncomfortable and awkward she is um those are
1: kind of uh, it. it weirdly reminded me of that perfect blue scene where she's shooting Mm. a scene that's uncomfortable but you don't know at the start of it that she's shooting a scene and you think it's real Mm -hmm. um yeah and you're on her side the whole time
0: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah that the where is it that they go winnipeg is that where they keep going to for a drink wichita wichita mm-hmm. wichita is where they keep going for a drink is that the name of a town because i thought that that's where they went for the pool mm. or is that specifically the name of a restaurant or like a bar oh i think it's uh, i think it's a town i i do yeah. too but like you never got a clear delineation of which buildings are in which town? Um, mm. And I don't remember ever clearly getting a sense of like the exterior of Wichita versus the town that we're in. And I don't even know the name of the town we're in. And I it's, think that's maybe the point.
2: That's true. Like Sonny and Dwayne go to Mexico. JC goes to Wichita for the pool party. But it really feels like the movie never actually leaves Annerine in a way. Um, because you don't get them those traveling moments where it would take some time to get these places. You're right. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how close that pool party is to entering.
1: And the only traveling moment that I can think of is when they get pulled over by the cops right when they get married, and uh, mm-hmm. they're subsequently separated. I, I I do appreciate that. Like we didn't see the annulment paperwork or like any mm-hmm. of that stuff.
2: Kind of moves right along past that.
1: Yeah. Or um the the fight between Jeff Bridges and Sonny when he you know seems like he could have become blinded you know we just cut to months later where he's okay that has a big old scar there's there's a lot of choices that I, I think just um are the sign of someone who really understands their vision um i, I don't even know mm-hmm. that i'd say bogdanovich is a master but like he totally knew what he wanted to convey and this film does
0: it perfectly
2: yeah um and I, I love some of the seeds that are at the movie theater. Um, th- there really aren't that many of them for a movie that's called The Last Picture Show. That's really more of a thematic title in a way. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think this also works kind of just as like a, a kind of a mourning for classic Hollywood. Like you can imagine Bogdanovich, who I think before directing was, was really a writer. He wrote extensively on Wells and Hawks and Ford. Um, and to sort of be paying homage to those old masters with this black and white um, look um, really feels like kind of a um, elegy for that in a way, which again, just feels very kind of, kind of mournful.
1: Yeah. It's like a a tombstone, right? Because I mean, 50 years beforehand, that same exact town, a story about it would have been a Western, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's this in between moment where we're after, World War II, we're far away from the Western, and we're still before Vietnam, and there's this helplessness um, to even the the older crowd, right? There's that line from the the gal running the restaurant that says, honey, I'll, I'll be serving your grandkids.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, you just kind of run the math in your mind, and you're like, okay, well, if you have a kid <sighs> now, and then they have a kid when they're 18 too, then jesus so you're thinking you're gonna be a waitress for at least another 20 years Mm -hmm. and you know it's just um that that under seating helplessness and like the the title of the film the last picture show is about you you know they start going to the the movies in the film and then the last thing that him and jeff bridges do is watch the last movie ever in the movie theater Mm -hmm. because it has to close and you know i think that there were a lot of screenings going dead at this time too there was a lot of second run theaters that eventually ran out um and so there's there's a, the bigger social conversation that we started with is kind of encapsulated within this film because it is the 50s um and i i believe that you know that that world war 2 um focus on media and you know uniting the nation and like being Mm -hmm. one thing is now just dissolving and people don't really know who or what they are um and i think that's you know there's that interesting scene where the kids are are singing the anthem after um jeff bridges and sybil shepherd failed to have sex
0: and he's trying Mm -hmm. to talk
1: to her while while the camera's scanning past all their faces and she rolls her eyes incredibly heavily Mm. and they, they all look so empty they're reciting this incantation for this thing that they know nothing about and feel no real mm-hmm. attachment to um, and that like really just underlines kind of this emptiness
2: yeah Dwayne in the end is going off to the to Korea as they keep saying I love that And it's it's just to try and forget about his girlfriend, who his best friend ended up hooking up with. Like it's just to try and forget. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. Yeah, accurate. Uh, It is. There is zero patriotism in that decision to enlist. It is just to get out because it's like he doesn't know what else to do. That's the only thing that might distract him. Do we see a flag? Yeah. Maybe on the football field? Um,
0: Maybe, okay.
1: Yeah, it's just like there's no like patriotism within the film either. mm -mm. It's, yeah, this is maybe one of those films that grows in greater appreciation the longer I've had with it.
2: Yeah. um, I am right there with you. It's better, it's, make it sound like a pretty depressing movie, but it's pretty
1: good. It's one of the best depressing (laughs) movies you can watch. Word, word. Um, Favorite scene?
2: I went first last time, I think. You go.
1: You did go first last time, and I had not yet picked a moment. I'm going to say when the boy prematurely ejaculates in the car, gets punched Mm. in the nose, or hit in the nose, and then... um, Sonny looks at him in the eyes, notices the blood on his nose, seems like he's going to do something and then doesn't. Mm. That's one of those really, um, delicately balanced moments from a, a director and a performer where you have to kind of build this moment that comes later after he dies and he, he gets upset with that entire crowd. Um, that's the moment that makes that moment matter. Without that specific moment, none of that other stuff pays off. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll pick that one. But I do think Sybil Shepherd's pool scene is is also like incredibly memorable and totally mm-hmm. masterful.
2: Oh yeah. It just to stay on that point, I feel like that young. I feel like I've read that that younger boy, the the mute boy, mm-hmm. is one of the more controversial characters because it feels like. He's just getting like punished in a way throughout this movie. And he's the one who ultimately dies. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that feel like too much for you? I feel like I've read that before. I don't think so either.
1: I I think that it's an, there's shitty people treating him shittily. And Mm -hmm. there's compassionate people who are heroic treating him well. And there's teenagers doing both because they're figuring out who they are as people and they're being socially performative. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they find out who they are and, you know he gets hit by a truck because he's sweeping and like i i don't know how you could construe that now if the argument is because he wasn't played by an actual disabled person then mm-hmm. you know that's a separate conversation that i also don't think holds that much water but um yeah you know i i think that It was a very compassionate way that Bogdanovich presented it in in more um, trembling hands. Maybe I I wouldn't appreciate it, but there's nothing but earnestness from Bogdanovich for that character.
2: Totally with you. Um, I think it's one of the more moving moments when all those guys are standing around the boy after he's been killed Mm -hmm. and they're barely even like responding to it. They don't look upset or concerned. (laughs) It just looks like like a squirrel got ran over or something like that. But Sonny still cares. It's like, you know, the Sam, the lion is, a, is coming through him a little bit yeah. in that moment. Um, to me, that's crucial. Or, he, that like, or
1: he's coming back to himself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's a little bit of hope in the fact that someone here still cares. It,
1: yeah. It's, um. we didn't talk about this in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but there's a moment in McCabe and Mrs. Miller where they're talking about, um. it costs you $50 to kill a Chinaman. Mm. And like, it reminded me of that moment of like this, like disgusting view of like these people are just like things instead of people. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's also maybe something that was, you know, from the 1970s and from the Korean war, like what is a life and who is a person?
2: Mm, Yeah, totally. Um, I'm struggling still to pick a favorite scene, but I guess I'll just pick like one more thing I really like, which is the music um, Great. There's all this country music so coming through the different radios, the pickup truck radio, the diner. Um, and it's – there's one song in particular that it starts with when Sonny is coming into town and then it plays again over the credits. And that's a Hank Williams song that sounds cheery on the surface but the lyrics are just so fitting and so sad where he's talking – he's saying, why don't you love me like you used to do? singing to some you know old flame and it just seems to capture all the disappointment and regret that everyone in this movie has about their relationships um and the fact that it's not sad on the surface just makes it like that much better um i'll go with that
1: completely agree that's 50 years ago michael we'll do this again 25 years ago
2: until then
0: Go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you.
2: And that's another one in the can.